All right, good morning, uh, Sunday morning church. How are we? All right, guys. Hey, listen, this is an incredible weekend. I, why am I wearing this T-shirt, you may ask? It's because this is the weekend. If you didn't get it with that video, the college students are back, and we are excited. We've got some in this. Yeah, clap for them. All right, yeah. Uh, there's some in this service. There's going to be a ton next service, and a lot, uh, you know, many of our college students, maybe most of our college students, come to the Sunday evening service. Uh, so let me tell you a couple things. Uh, if you're new, welcome. Uh, if you're visiting, welcome. Maybe you've been around for a while, you don't know this. Here's a question. We're, we're about a six-year-old church. Why did we come to Winston-Salem? Well, there's lots of answers to that, right? One of the reasons we came to Winston was, well, we saw the met large medical community. We were excited about investing in that. That's great. And we've seen lots of medical students and residents and fellows and attendings, and I'm learning the language. Okay, they're all in our church. It's great. So we're, we're glad about that. Uh, we also came here because of uh, what we saw happening in the city. You know, if you're new here, this city's in like its third revitalization, right? A long time ago, it's like, we're a tobacco city. We're not a tobacco city, right, anymore, right? Then it was, we're a banking city. And then it was, Charlotte, you took all of our banks, right? And so now we're trying to figure out who are we? And, and what we found out is, okay, well, maybe we are a medical city with a private institution at the center that's trying to really make it with arts and innovation. So we came, we're excited about that. We came because of the spiritual state of this city, right? This city is over-churched and under-reached. There's lots of great churches in the city, but we came and said, man, we wanna bring the gospel, continue to do all the things, uh, follow in the steps of where God's already been leading churches here, but that's why we came. But, but here's one of the main reasons we came. One of the main reasons we came is the college campuses. If you didn't know that, in this fairly small city of just a quarter million people, there's a lot of college campuses, and they're all unique, right? There's Wake Forest, a top 25 school. There's Winston-Salem State, a historically black uh, college. There's a UNC School of the Arts, an artsy college, okay? Uh, there's Salem College, an all-girls school. There's uh, Carolina University, a Christian school. There's Forsyth Tech, a community college, you get it. Anyway, here, here's our heart for college students. Here's what we have found. Think about your own life. Some of you are, I'm looking around, many of you are out of college, okay? You've been to college. Most people don't look at college as a neutral time for them spiritually, right? Think about your college experience. It's normally a spiritual greenhouse or a spiritual wasteland, right? It's like you either go, that's where I came to Christ, that's where I was discipled, that's where I learned how to study my Bible, that's where I learned how to share my faith, that's where I learned what Christian community was. Uh, or you look back and you go, I'm still repenting. <laughs> I'm still repenting. My marriage got off to a terrible start uh, because of that. Because here's what we know. When you're in college, the cement is wet. That's a good way to think about it, right? It's like you're going to college, you're 18 to 22, and you're deciding, what am I going to believe about family and finances and friends and faith? And am I going to personalize and invigorate and own the faith that maybe my family raised me in? Or am I going to forget and forsake it? So here's what we're hoping to do. Let me just say it because there's college students in here. We want to invest in you. We think the college campus is a unique people group. <laughs> One way to think about it, it's a unique population. People are only there for four years. And, and according to a recent Harvard study, only 6.7% of people in the world even get the chance to go to college. And then everyone's in college for, well, some of you are there for four years, others of you were there for five or six years, okay? But, but then from there, you go everywhere. And so what we want, we, we're hoping that people who are part of our church, whether at Wake or Winston State or wherever they are, they would look back on their college experience, see it as a spiritual greenhouse, not as a spiritual wasteland, see it as a place where they learned how to follow Jesus and help others find and follow Jesus. So let's pray for our college students because look, no one goes to college to become a Christian, right? No one, no one drives down, you know, from the North heading to Wake Forest, I'm gonna become a Christian at college, that's what I'm gonna do. But God often works miraculously. And we've seen a lot of that. And we'll be telling you more stories about that in the weeks to come of how we've seen college students come to faith in Christ and be discipled in our church. So let's pray for the college students and then let's dive in to the gospel of Mark. Let's pray. Lord, we pray for the college students. We think of the thousand Wake Forest freshmen that just moved in. 
literally from all over the world, but especially all over our nation. And we think about all of, we, we pray for the Christians, the Christian freshmen who are, are gonna have to make a decision of how personal and how public their faith is going to be. We pray for people, because even in that first six weeks of the college campus, so many of the relationships that are gonna end up defining and directing the rest of their college life happen in the first six weeks. So we just pray that, particularly the Christians from our church who are on these college campuses, that they would be there to meet students, especially freshmen, with the help and the hope of Jesus. We pray this in your name, amen. All right, if you're new, welcome. We are in the second book in the New Testament. It's the Gospel of Mark. Most think it's the first gospel written, okay? Uh, you can turn to Mark chapter two, verse 18. We are flying over this book, so sorry. We're gonna cover about a chapter today. Uh, and it's an incredible book, an incredible gospel. We're looking at the man, the mission, the message, the ministry of Jesus Christ. And we're gonna be in this book for five months together. So let's just dive right in. Turn with me to chapter two, verse 18. Here's what it says, look. Now John's disciples, if you're like, who's John? He's John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, as I affectionately love to call him, the first Baptist, okay? That's who he is. It says, look, now John's disciples, that's John the Baptist, and the Pharisees. Now, when you see the Pharisees, basically also think Sadducees, think scribes. It's all of the religious leaders. They're all kind of uh, bunched together. They were fasting. We'll talk about that. And the people came and they said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast but your disciples do not fast. Notice that people are confused about who Jesus is and what he's doing and why his disciples are acting how they're acting. Uh, here, here's what we're gonna see today, okay? We're gonna see three or four different accounts of Jesus, Jesus interacting with a bunch of different people. Primarily, we're gonna see him interacting with the Pharisees. And so here's one way to think about today's message. This is Jesus and conflict. This is Jesus and controversy. This is Jesus and critics, right? And, and here's the truth. If you're gonna follow Jesus, and I know not everybody in here follows Jesus. I know some of you are seekers and some of you are skeptics and some of you, your spouse brought you and some of you, your parents brought you and some of you are just checking it out, fair enough. But if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, just remember, by the way, that you follow, we follow a guy who was rejected, betrayed and crucified. Yet somehow we think our life is gonna be super easy. Well, here's what we see with Jesus. Jesus had critics, Jesus had controversy, Jesus had conflict. Let me just try to bring this down for all of us. If you're going to be a faithful Christian, this is just the truth, this is one of the litmus tests of are you a faithful Christian? You're going to have some controversy in your life. You're going to have some conflict in your life. You're going to have some critics in your life. Like I remember I was a brand new Christian, I was a freshman at Elon University and I was trying to be a faithful Christian on my hall and a public Christian on my hall. And back then we had these things called answering machines. Okay, they were, I had one of these, this is okay. I had a cell phone, but it wasn't very, it was a dumb phone, not a smartphone. We had an answering machine. And I remember one of the guys on the hall who thought he was pretty funny, he calls and leaves a voicemail on my answering machine. Kyle, it's God. <laughs> Calm down, you're scaring me. And it was his way, it was funny, we laughed about it. I showed some of the other guys on the hall. It was his way to say, Kyle, you're a little too serious about your faith. Do you know that, by the way, that's what's gonna happen. If no one has ever thought you're too serious about your faith, then I, I'm not sure if you're a real Christian. If, everyone, if no one's ever thought, dude, you're taking this a li little too seriously. Like the way you're raising your kids, the way you're spending your time, the way you're giving your money, like it's a little serious. Let, let, me, let me say it this way. Tim Keller, it's always good to quote Tim Keller if you don't know who that is. He's a former pastor in New York City 
Uh, he's in his 70s, godly man, faithful ministry for years. Here's what he says. If everybody likes you, you're probably unfaithful to Christ. I mean, we have a verse for that. Woe to you, this is Jesus' words, woe to you when all men speak well of you. He also said this, though. If everybody doesn't like you, you're probably a jerk, okay? So you just, <laughs> you, gotta, you gotta hold those in tension, okay? That's where we are, okay. All right, so here's what I wanna see. If you are ever going to stand up for something, if you are ever going to step out, if you are ever in any situation, it could be Thanksgiving dinner, if you're going to speak up, you're going to expose yourself, you're gonna expose your beliefs, you're gonna expose your convictions, and what's gonna happen is there's gonna be some criticism. Now listen, Jesus's greatest critics were religious people, strange, I know. But let me just tell you, I've seen the same thing in our city. When we came here, it wouldn't be appropriate for me to name the church, so I won't. When we came here, there was a church that said, you can meet for all your launch team meetings this summer. I met with the associate pastor. And I said, oh, thank God. Because back then we were so poor, we couldn't pay attention, okay? That's how poor we were. And uh, they were gonna basically let us use this place for free. And we were like, oh, this is great. We, were gonna, we had a place all summer. I remember calling Pastor Dave. He wasn't even, even living in Winston yet. I got a place for us. A week later, I get an email from the associate pastor. I'm sorry, my senior pastor found out you're from the Summit Church. He doesn't like that church. We have rescinded our offer for you guys to have meetings here. I thought, well, that was strange. Maybe that's a one-off. Well, then Dave, Pastor Dave moves here. And while he's looking for houses, he stops by a church which I also won't name, different church. And he's excited. Hey, we're coming to the city. This is awesome. We want to reach people for Christ. We want to make disciples. He meets with an executive pastor of a church. The executive pastor says, Winston-Salem doesn't need any more churches. That's the religious spirit. The religious spirit, you know the religious spirit because the religious spirit is territorial. The religious spirit doesn't want any change. And here's what I want you to see today. Jesus got in so much conflict. Here's the main point of this passage, the main point of the message. Because he was bringing something new that didn't fit into the old. Jesus did not come to reform religion. He came to end religion. And we're gonna see this as we see fasting. We're gonna see that as we see the Sabbath and as we see the family. So let, let's get started. We've got a lot to cover. Go back with me to chapter two, verse 18. Here's what it says. Now John's disciples... And the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. Okay, so he's talking about fasting. Now, what is fasting? Okay, fasting is what well, literally means, the word fast in the Greek means to cease from food. That's what it is. Here's a good way to think about fasting. Fasting is when you starve your flesh to strengthen your soul. That's what, it, and it could be, most people it's food, but some people have medical issues and it can't be food, or some people have some other big issue in their life, like I need, to, I need to fast social media, I need to fast streaming, I need to fast alcohol, I need to fast this hobby that's getting too big in my life, whatever it is, people can fast different things. Uh, here's the thing about fasting. Like I told you, it's when you starve your uh, flesh to strengthen your soul. Now, when we hear fasting today, what do we normally think of? Intermittent fasting, right? That's what y'all think of, right? I saw recently that the guy from the police officer from Stranger Things, from season three to season four, if you've seen this, he's lost 70 pounds. And he said the only way, basically the only thing he did was intermittent fasting. It's like, what? I need, I read more about this, but you can only eat food for four hours of the day. <laughs> but you don't eat food for 20 hours, you eat it for four hours. Now, here's why I say this, because most of us, when we think about fasting, we think about the physical benefits of fasting. God gave us fasting, not for the, yes, it gives me a clearer mind. 
or yes, I can lose some weight. God gave us fasting for spiritual reasons. Let me give you three reasons. This isn't the main point of the text here, but just to help you. When it comes to fasting, why might you fast? Fasting is one of the ways you turbocharge your faith, right? I, a guy that I, a brand new Christian, he just started fasting one time and he was still raw in how he communicated things. He said, Kyle, when I fast, I feel like I'm cheating. He said, when I fast, I feel like I'm cutting corners. Because when I fast, my prayers feel like they're just, they go faster to heaven. When I, when I, when I fast, I feel like the Bible comes alive to me. When I fast, what the things that are in me that I couldn't get because I covered them with food, I can now feel. So that's one reason you'd fast. Here's another reason you'd fast. You'd fast if you have big decisions to make, right? So, I mean, you should be fasting occasionally. We'll see this. Jesus assumes we fast, but you should fast big decisions. Should I get married? Should we have another kid? Should we buy this house? Should we change this job? Should we pursue foster care and adoption? It's like, well, we should probably fast about this. Fasting gets all of the the mess out of our lives so we can more clearly hear from God. Uh, but also fasting is often, and this, we'll see this today as well, fasting is a time to mourn. Sometimes if you're stuck in the sin, you might want to fast. Like, I just keep giving into it. And part of what you do when you fast is you communicate to God, I'm serious. I'm so serious, I'm not eating today. That's how serious I am about dealing with this thing. Well, how was fasting back then? Well, fasting for the Pharisees was... Well, let me say this first. The Jews, they were only supposed to fast once, once a year. They only had like a calendar, one day on their calendar every year where they had to fast. It was the Day of Atonement. It was Yom Kippur, okay? So that was the only time where they had to fast. Now, here's what the Jews did, or here's what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees took fasting and they made it a badge of honor. And so what the Pharisees would do, and we know this from other writings, they would fast twice a week. They would fast every Monday and they would fast every Thursday. But Jesus would tell us later that when they fasted, what they would do is they would look really sad right? And they would like let everybody know, I'm fasting. You know, that's kind of how they did it. Here's what happened. And this is, this is what's wrong with religion. The Pharisees put themselves at the center of fasting. This is, I want you to understand this. If you're not a Christian, I just want you to know how broken Christians are. Christians are so broken and so depraved and so messed up and so selfish that we are somehow, I don't know how we're able to do it. We're able to make everything about us. You'd go, how can we make fasting about us? Well, it's gonna be a way for people to think we're awesome. How can prayer be about us? Well, all I do is I just give God my grocery list of all the things that I want. We can make Bible reading about us. Let me just search the scriptures to see about my finances. I need some more verses on how to work. I mean, we've made it all about us. Now today, you don't see people fasting and, you know, and, and showing that. What you see today is people reading their Bible for five minutes and then taking an hour to post about it online, <laughs> right? Here's my Bible next to my journal, next to my cup of coffee, hashtag blessed, right? Or something like that. It's a silly example, but we're not saying you can never post about your devotional life. We're not saying everybody who does that has got bad motives, but it's another, it's a way that we do that. So what Jesus is gonna do, look, I want you to see this. This is so important. This is so profound. Uh, Jesus responds to their question about fasting. Look at verse 19. And Jesus said to them, now if I was Jesus, I'd probably be like, listen guys, I just got done with a 40-day fast. Don't talk to me about fasting. But Jesus is more godly than me, obviously. <laughs> he doesn't say that. Okay, look what he says. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will Sorry, and then they will fast in that day. Two things I want us to notice here. One, he basically says that while he's on earth, it's not a time of fasting, it's a time of feasting. Uh, he says that when he leaves, it'll be a time of fasting. So this is the time of fasting. And the main reason that you fast is because you miss Christ. That's why you would fast. 
the deepest reason why you would fast is you would say, I miss Jesus. I want him to return. I want to be with him. But I've got so much, I mean, this is not true for Americans, but we have so much stuff in our lives that I forget that. And I need to get all this out of my mind to remember how much I miss him. But he says, look, now's not the time. Now is the time for fasting. I'm saying, but he was saying when he's writing this, he goes, now's not the time for fasting. It's the time for feasting, right? He basically says, do you see the illustration? He says, I'm the bridegroom. Basically, I'm getting married. Like, I'm the husband. I'm the head of this. I'm throwing this massive wedding, right? When would be the absolute worst time to fast? During a wedding, right? Especially if rich people are throwing the wedding, right? You're like, this is awesome. There's a live band. They've got real food. They've got dessert. This is amazing. You wouldn't want to fast during that the same way you wouldn't want to fast during a vacation. The principle, by the way, in scripture is that, and we've known this for a long time, this is common knowledge, but that all of life is supposed to be in moderation. But there are times for fasting and there are times for feasting. And if you only feast, what is that? Well, that's hedonism, right? If you only feast, it's like, well, you're a glutton and a drunkard and you die of a heart attack at you know, 42. If you only fast, well, we don't really have problems with that, but that would be, they're, they're, historically, there have been problems with that. That's asceticism. That's the monastery mindset. That's the, I forgot God's a good creator and wants me to enjoy but here's what I want you to really see. Do you see that Jesus puts himself at the center of fasting? This is what's so controversial. This is what creates so much conflict. Jesus says, guys, here's the problem. You've been the center of your life. And by the way, that happens in religion or rebellion. Religious people, they, I'll show you how this happens, they put themselves at the center of their religion. It's about me being a good person. It's about me showing everybody else how good I am. Rebellious people put themselves at the center of their lives. It's about whatever immediate, cheap, instant pleasure I want. Jesus confronts both, particularly he's confronting the religious people. And he says, actually, I'm supposed to be the center of fasting. Here's the application for our, all of our lives. Those of us who would say we're Christians. If Jesus isn't the center of it, you're doing it wrong. It's like, if you feel like I did in my preparation, you're like, well, then I've got to change a lot of things. If Jesus isn't the center of my Bible reading, I'm doing it wrong. I mean, Jesus says to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures and... You don't know that they point to me. It's like, if I'm reading my Bible and it's not about Jesus, it's wrong. Like, like if, if I'm, somehow we can make the church about us. The church is about my needs and the church is about my kids and the church is about my desires and the church is about my hobby horses and the church is about my pet projects. It's like somehow we took the bride of Christ and we made it about us. You, and, and so what we have to do, and this is why God gave us a heart and a mind, right? The ability for reflection and affection is I have to think hard. What does it look like for Jesus to be the center of this? I think about college students. What does it look like Jesus to be the center of your academics? I thought of one story as I thought about that. I had a friend and he was taking biology 101. This really happened, imagine this. And in the first day of biology 101, the teacher goes, I want each of you to tell me why you're in this class. And so I, I don't remember all the other answers the kids gave. You know, I'm here, I wanna learn about this. I'm here, I wanna learn about this. Imagine this. this this is my friend, Nick. He was bold enough, first day of class, he said, this may sound strange, I'm here to learn more about God. And I think by taking this biology class, I'm gonna learn more about the creation, I'm gonna learn more about God. I'm like, wow, that's somebody who somehow was putting God at the center of even how he was thinking about biology. So Jesus confronts them, but he tells a very interesting two short parables that unpack why Jesus came. And I want us to get these, because these are not often taught on, but they're profound. Look at these. This is right after this parable. Look at verse 21. He says this, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth 
on an old garment. So he's using a sewing parable. All the guys are like, I don't understand sewing. <laughs> well, Jesus spoke both to men and women. He wants to use different illustrations, but let's read this. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. So then he says this, if he does, the patch tears away from it and the new from the old and a worse tear is made. So basically saying, if you have this old garment with holes in it, now I know if you're under 30, you're like, wait a second, I buy clothes with holes in them. <laughs> That's a new idea in human history, okay? You're like, I spent $300 to have a kid in China rip holes in these. <laughs> Too soon, okay. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, back then, it was not cool to have holes in your clothes. Okay, I want you to understand. So um, <laughs> that's key to understanding this passage. Um, and so what they would say is, it's very simple. Hey, if you took a new patch and you put it on an old garment with holes in it, the new patch, very simple, the new patch is... Uh, hasn't shrunk yet, so when it's washed, it's gonna shrink and it's gonna rip away and the patch will be destroyed and the uh, old garment will be destroyed. Now look what he says, this is connected. And no one puts new wine, some of you go, I don't know anything about sewing, but I know a lot about wine, all right. <laughs> uh, no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the wine will burst, the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins, but the new wine is for fresh wine skins. So basically what he's saying here, just real quickly, wine skins were made out of goat skins, um, if you had a new wine skin out of new goat skin, it was very flexible, it was very expandable, it was very elastic. And so you'd put new wine into a new wine skin, not a big deal because when you capped it, uh, the wine would still ferment and it would expand and that's fine. But if you put new wine into an old wine skin, it was brittle and it was wooden and you would think it would work at first, but as soon as you put the cap on and gave it some time, it would explode with the fermentation and you'd ruin the new wine and you'd ruin the old wine skin. Okay, now here's what you wanna ask. When you read parables and especially when they're right next to each other, you wanna go, What's the point? What, what do these two parables have in common? One's about a patch, one's about wineskins. Here's the point of these parables. <clears throat> there are things that if you combine them, you ruin both of them. Do you see that? The patch is ruined and the garment is ruined. The new wine is ruined and the old wineskin is ruined, right? Like there are things you can combine in life, right? There is iced tea and there is lemonade and by themselves are amazing. And then there's iced tea and lemonade together. Arnold Palmer, even better, right? Right, you, you get, you can either put sweet tea, if you're from the South, or if you're biblical like me, unsweet tea, that's enough, okay? I mean, how sweet do y'all need this to be anyway? Come on. And then you add the lemonade, right? But we all know the experience of here's two things, they're good by themselves. When I mix them together, maybe you would argue they're as good or better, okay? That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about something like this. Fruit, good. Cake, good. Fruitcake, horrible, right? <laughs> horrible, who came up with the idea of fruitcake? You know it's terrible. <laughs> Every time you think about fruitcake, I want you to think about Jesus. Okay, here we go. Um, the, the whole idea is you ruin both things. Here's what Jesus is saying, and this is, this is he, he, he tells us things, by the way, we'll get into this more next week. He tells us things in parables so we would think about them for a while, and he would give us images to think about. What he's saying is when you try to add Christianity, Christ, the message of Christ, following Christ to an old life. That's what an old garment is, it's your old life. It doesn't work. I don't know how to say this any more clearly than what Jesus is talking about is the radical nature of conversion. And what he's saying is Christianity doesn't fit on your old life as a patch. Even maybe more profound, sorry guys, Christianity doesn't even fit inside your old life. Jesus didn't come to patch up your old life. He came to give you a whole new life. 
Jesus didn't come to make you a better version of yourself. He came to make you a new person. And my concern is most people, especially in Winston-Salem, especially in 2022, they view Christianity. I'll meet these people all the time. And Christianity is a patch on already decent life that has one little hole. My teenage kids are breaking my heart. I need a patch. I'm like, sorry. It's about, go ahead and try that. And then this is why people, by the way, six months into trying Christianity, and by trying Christianity, I mean, I call it patch Christianity, throwing a patch on. They're like, it didn't work for me. It's like, sorry, because it doesn't work that way. I just need a little help with my finances. I just need you, just, Jesus, don't touch all of my life, but get over here and help my marriage. I just need a patch on this addiction in my life. The rest, part of it is we don't even understand the whole garment's ruined. We need a whole new garment. A lot of people view Christianity as it's a piece of the pie, right? You meet people like this all the time. Christianity is, I mean, functionally, it's like 10% of what they do. And they're grateful for it, and they like a good sermon. They like singing a couple songs. They're glad their kids have got something. But really, when you look under the hood, it's like, this is one of like seven things you do of equal value. You've got your hobbies, and you've got your education, and you've got your work, and Christianity is a piece of the pie. Jesus is saying, look, I promise you that doesn't work. And he actually shows us back then an example of how they would try to put a patch on their Christianity, on their faith. Let me show you, because this is, I think, how many of us try to do this. Look at his next interaction. The whole Bible's connected, so look what it says here. It says, one Sabbath, he, that's Jesus, was going through the grain fields. This is verse 23. And as they made their way, the disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying uh, to him, look, why are they doing what is, un what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So here's what they do. Uh, the Sabbath, this isn't a whole sermon on Sabbath. I'll have to make this quick. The Sabbath was supposed to be a gift to us. Um, it was supposed to serve us. It was supposed to bless us. It was not supposed to be a burden. And what the Sabbath was, was it was a day, it, it was basically, so you, you tithe your finances. That's the Bible talks about tithing. And the Bible also talks about tithing your time. And the way that you tithe your time, it's actually, well, if you do the math, it's actually 14%, is you give one day a week to the Lord fully. And you rest and you say, Lord, I'm gonna trust you. In the same way, when I give 10%, I'm trusting you to do more with 90% than, uh, than I could do with 100. That's what you're doing when you tithe. And when you take a day off, when you take a Sabbath, you go, God, I'm actually trusting you. I'm trusting you to do more in six days than you could in seven. And we all say Chick-fil-A made it work somehow, okay? That's what they, yeah, they figured it out. Um, <laughs> But here's the thing, what happened here, and I want you to see this, is this is the patch that religious people put, and this is the patch that you're gonna be tempted to put. Instead of really getting to the heart of the issue, which is the Sabbath is a day for me to rest and trust God, they made it about themselves through rules. They added more rules. Do you see, they said, is he picking grain on the Sabbath? See, what religious people do as a patch on their lives is they try to create rules that they can obey. So for the Sabbath, there was, I won't go through all 39, there was 39 rules. Uh, one rule was uh, you can only walk 1,999 paces on the Sabbath. If you walk 2,000, that was considered you've gone farther than a Sabbath day's walk or a Sabbath day's journey, and you quote-unquote broke the Sabbath. He goes, is there a verse on that? No. Some religious guy made that up. You could write one letter on the Sabbath, but you could not write two. You could not untie a knot on the Sabbath, and I am not kidding about that, Okay. 
But the whole, the whole point is, now you may ask, why do people, this is really important to understand about the human condition. Why do we make rules about the rules? And some of you grew up in a religious home like this, right? We've had certain moms in our church through tears basically confess, I was a religious mom. And it hurt my kids. Lots of laws, little love. Lots of rules, little relationship. And so you may want to go, well, why do, why do people have so many rules? Well, there's at least two reasons. There's always more than this. But there, one reason is people like lots of rules because it lets you be in control. Right? Because then you can be checking up on everybody if they're keeping the rules. And you can be the guardian of all that. Okay? But the hard issue here is it's easier to make rules because what, what the Pharisees would do is they would make rules that they could keep so they would feel good about themselves. Is it harder to take a day off and trust God and truly cease from work and think about all God's done in your life and be grateful? Is that harder or is it harder to just not walk 2,000 paces? Well, it's a lot easier just to not walk 2,000 paces. That's why they did that. Is it easier to, to worship God, give him a unique day, or is it easier just to not write two letters? It's easier not to write two letters. These are patches that people put on their life that make them feel good about it. Today, it could be the patch of, well, I'll go to church and I'll get in community group and I'll occasionally do a devotional. These are patches. They're not whole new lives. Look what happens next on the Sabbath. He says to them, verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So that's the, and then he puts himself at the center of the Sabbath, by the way. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now look at here. Another thing happens on the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. Literally in the Greek, a hard hand. Uh, uh, this man is disabled and he is unable to use one of his hands. It was hardened and stiff and unable to be used. It says this, and they, that's the Pharisees, watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Okay, here's what we have in this situation. I want us to see this. We have a man with a hardened hand and we have Pharisees with hardened hearts. Now, Jesus can work with a hardened hand. We're gonna see that in a minute. But it's very hard. I mean, Jesus can do anything, but what, what, what hindered the work of Christ the most in people's lives was hardened hearts. And we're gonna see what they do here. Look here. It says, verse two, they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Now, we don't know this for sure, but most commentators, as we try to put the story together, think that potentially what happened was these men, the Pharisees, planted the man with a hardened hand, withered hand. Well, they knew Jesus was a good Jew, so he's gonna go to synagogue and, you know, and they, so they may have brought this man in and they were watching him to see what he would do. Now, here's what's really interesting. I think this is really pastorally helpful and encouraging to us. They knew something about Jesus that we need to know. It's that when Jesus walks into a room, he's going to be most attracted to the need in that room. And some of you feel like, does Jesus see, you know, my loneliness? Does Jesus see my anxiety? Does Jesus see my depression? Does Jesus see my grieving over the loss of my son? Does Jesus see, you know, our struggle with infertility? Does Jesus see just how hurting and how lonely I am? And the answer from this text is absolutely. <laughs> In fact, he's attracted to need and thank God because we're all needy. It's the opposite of us, right? What do we normally do when we're in a room? We normally don't walk into a room, or maybe it's just me, but we don't normally walk into a room and think, who can I serve? We normally think something like, maybe it's not this articulated, who in this room could serve me? Does somebody have an influence? Does somebody have a network? Does somebody have affluence? Is somebody in here connected? Could somebody, if I knew somebody in this room, could they push me along further, faster in some area? 
Well, fair enough. Maybe there's a place for that. But Jesus comes and he sees, their need, sees the need of this man. Now look what he does here. And he said to the man, verse three, with the withered hand, come here. So he wants to honor this man and he wants to publicly show his power. And he said to them, this is, so Jesus says to the Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. So here's what Jesus does. And part of what we're, by the way, we're trying to do in this series, among many other things, is we're trying to look at the life of Jesus and we're trying to figure out how to better make disciples, how to better reach people for Christ. Um, and one of the things we see here is that Jesus is very good. We'll see this again and again. Jesus is very good at asking questions. You and I need to get better at asking questions. Um, the world looks at Christians as those who think we have all the answers. And we do have some answers about the most important things in the world, but it's not because we're more spiritual. It's not because we're smarter. It's not because we're special. It's because God's revealed these in Scripture. But I think we need to get better at asking questions. Now, there's a book on this called Questioning Evangelism by Randy Newman. He's a Messianic Jew, a Jew that came to faith in Christ. He did ministry on a college campus. He tells one of my favorite stories. He said he was, imagine this, he was in some big investigative Bible study at some big state school. And uh, he said there's like 20 or 30 guys around. And uh, he's, they're talking, walking through whatever gospel or something. And he said some arrogant guy, well, I added arrogant. He didn't say he was arrogant, but you'll see he was arrogant. I don't know about that. He, so, he said some arrogant guy says, hold on, in the middle of this Bible study with 30 people, hold on. So what you're telling me is that everybody who doesn't believe in Jesus is going to hell. Is that what you're saying? Everyone on this college campus who doesn't believe in Jesus is going to hell? Now, if someone said that to you and you're that person, you know, I, I, I'd start thinking, okay, how do I explain the doctrine of sin? How do I talk about how a sin created in finite time against an infinite God could deserve an infinite punishment? I start going theology. He doesn't do that. He looks at the guy and says this, do you believe in hell? The guy says no. He goes, don't worry about it. In that, that's just like, that's like, that's like, just like Jesus. It's like, and he said, it gets better. He said, a guy in the group said, I believe in hell. A different guy. And he said, do you think anyone's gonna be there? The guy says, I do. He says, why do you think someone's gonna be there or not be there? And he said, what it did was by asking questions, they were able to get to the heart of the issues. They were letting people think. We need to get better at asking questions. Jesus asks the question. They won't even answer it. So look what happens here. Verse five. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Okay, some of us need a different view of Jesus. Some of you think Jesus never gets angry. Some of you just think Jesus meek and mild. Some of you think Jesus, the Galilean peasant who only drinks decaf coffee, okay? What we see here is now Jesus didn't always get angry. He didn't even maybe often get angry. Obviously, there's a difference between unrighteous anger and righteous anger. Do you see Jesus is both angry and grieved? It's like, man, there are some things that you probably need to get angry about. I know how anger works with people. Here's how anger works with people. Some of you had a bad experience with anger, right? Mom was angry, dad was angry, grandpa was angry, grandma was angry, my boss was angry, my ex was angry, and so you told yourself at some point, I'm never gonna be angry. Well, it's like, well, don't be, the Bible says be slow to anger. The Bible says in your anger, do not sin. What we see from Jesus is anger should always be connected to grief. Do you see this? I'm angry at sin, and I'm grieved at how it hurts people, Right? So you look at racism, you go, I'm angry. I'm angry. It's an assault on the image of God. I'm angry at it. I'm also grieved. I'm grieved when you hear all the stories of the people who've been affected by racism. You, you're, we get angry at abortion, right? The intentional killing of an innocent life. It's like, well, that's something to get angry about. It needs to be tempered with, we're grieved. We're grieved at 
Millions and millions of babies lost. We're grieved at all of the women who've been lied to, who were told this is a one-time decision, you're going to get over it, and then they never do get over it. We're grieved at the lies that are told. We get angry at ab abuse. We get grieved at all the stories of the victims of abuse. And so what Jesus does here is he gets angry. And I love what Martin Luther said about anger. Martin Luther, that famous monk, he said, I love to get angry, he said. The right kind of angry. He said, because when you're angry, you think better. When you're angry, everything gets aligned. He said, when I'm angry, I write better. I preach better. I think better. Jesus gets angry. He gets grieved. And look what he does next. He says, this is in verse 5. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel against the Herodians, against him, on how to destroy him. Okay, so what I want us to notice here is another unique thing about Jesus. So he asked the man, if you're reading this, he asked the man to do something that the man was unable to do. Do you notice that? It's almost cruel if Jesus wouldn't empower him to do it. To ask a disabled person, if the right arm is disabled, to say, move your disabled hand. Or to say to somebody who's been in a wheelchair, get up. Stand up, it's time for you to stand up. Or somebody who can't hear, I need you to listen to me right now. All that's really cruel. Unless Jesus is going to give you a command and create in you the ability to, to obey that command. That's the point of this story. That whatever Jesus commands us to do, he gives us a new power to do it. And here's why that's important, because in your life right now, Jesus is telling you, if you're trying to really follow Jesus, he's telling you to do something Usually in every area of our lives, or every season of our lives, we feel like, I can't do it. There's like a sin. It's like, he told you to repent of it. And you, here's what you need to do. You go, Jesus, you've asked me to do this. Would you please empower me to do this? Sometimes it's to love a difficult spouse. Well, you don't know how selfish he is. You don't know how selfish she is. Sometimes it's to step out and share your faith. In any area, this is what's so amazing. Jesus doesn't just from a distance command us to do something. He comes alongside us and enables us to do it. So first we see Jesus comes, he gives us a new center, right? He says, I gotta be the center, not yourself. And that affects re rebellion and religion. And then he says, I'm gonna give you a new capacity, but we just saw that. I'm gonna give you a new ability. But then he's gonna finally give us a new community. Look here, look at verse, uh, verses seven through 12. They, he goes and teaches on a boat. Let's go to verse 13. In verse 13, it says this. And he went up on the mountain. Luke actually tells us he spent all night praying about this. And he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. So this is, this is a transition in the book of Mark and in the ministry of Jesus. From this point on, he spends all his time primarily with these 12 men. So it's this. And he appointed 12. Now, you need to know in the Bible, 12 is a, not a common number to see. This is clearly pointing us back to the 12 tribes. In the Old Testament, it was the 12 tribes. He's replacing the 12 tribes with these 12 men. He's saying... All of Christianity and all of the people of God are now going to reorient and reorganize themselves around me. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be, here's the key thing, this is all of discipleship, this is the whole Christian life, that we might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach. Now Jesus, to understand the ministry of Jesus is to helpfully understand your ministry. Jesus loved the world, he helped many, he discipled a few. That would be a good thing, that would be a good purpose for your life. You know, that's all you can do. How are you going to love 7 billion people? It's like, well, you just, you pray for the world. We have strategic partnerships. Jesus prayed and cried over Jerusalem. I mean, Jesus loved the world. He helped many, right? He was constrained in his earthly ministry to a body, to time, and to space, so he helped many. Here's some teaching. Hope that helps. Here's some healing. Hope that helps. Here's some casting out of demons. Hope that helps. 
but he spent all of his time discipling a few. Do you see that it says they were to do two things? One, to be with him, and two, to be sent out from him, right? So he, he has mission, he has purpose, he has vision for these men from the beginning. Now, here, I think this is helpful. How do you know who you should invest in, right? And we're hoping, I mean, obviously you're gonna, well, my kids, yes, you need to invest in them. But like if somebody wants to be with you to be discipled, I mean, not exactly like with Jesus, they're not gonna live with you for, you know, three and a half years. But if someone, because in our church like our size all the time, you know, some young mom wants to be discipled by some older mom, young guy wants to be discipled by some older guy, college student wants to be discipled by some married, whatever, it's all that. Here's how to think about it. Let me give you an acrostic that I think is super helpful. It's the faith acrostic. Faithful, available, initiative, teachable, hungry. This may be controversial, but I wouldn't invest in somebody who doesn't show those five attributes. Faithful, do they do what they're gonna say they're gonna do? So this is where I went. When somebody wants to be discipled by me, I play this game, tag, you're it. All right, here, shoot me an email, tell me the dates. Here's two books to read before we meet. Tag, you're it. A lot of times I don't get an email. Most times I don't read the books. Available, are you available? Were these guys available? I think so. Three and a half years. Most people say, I'm not very available, but I'm able to watch five seasons of Better Call Saul. Gotcha, right? It's like, but I'm still able to work out every day and I'm able to hang out every weekend and I'm able to get my 10 hours of sleep. Okay, well, maybe you're not very available. How about initiative? I want to be with you. I want to learn from you. Are you going to the grocery store? Can I help? Do you need help watching the kids? Can, your bit, can I come to where you are? What's your schedule look like? Teachable, I have a lot to learn. There's so many things that I don't know. I don't even know what I don't know and I need help knowing that. And then hungry is this, I've got a desire. I wanna grow, I wanna learn. I hunger, as, as uh, Jesus would say in the Beatitudes, I hunger and thirst for righteousness. So he calls these men and says, to be with them, to send them out. This is, this is a huge conviction of our church. We are not a collecting society. We are a mobilizing and commissioning society. We bring people in so that we can hopefully send them out. This is why when you come to our weekender, it's like, hey, to use that language, that might be a collecting moment. Hey, let's all come together. Here's the purpose so that we can all go out where we live, learn, work, and play. Anyway, so Jesus does this. Now in verses 16 through 19, I won't read it to you. He gives us the list. Here's what you just need to know. Simon's always mentioned first. Judas is always mentioned last. In between the names, the order of the names changes. Judas is mentioned last because he betrayed Christ. And um, Simon is mentioned first because he's going to be the leader of the disciples when Jesus goes to heaven. Look what happens here, verse 20. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, this is the first mention of Jesus' family, in the book of Mark, they went out to seize him. It's like, wow. See, the Bible's just honest. It's telling us. Even Jesus' family was concerned and confused about Jesus. For they were saying, he's out of his mind, okay? So his family didn't understand him. By the way, that's gonna happen to you sometimes if you follow Christ. What's happened to you? They were embarrassed by the way of how maybe what he was doing would reflect on them. Now, in the next few verses, he has another conflict that I don't have time to get into where he has a conflict again with the Pharisees, where, they, where he warns them of committing the sin of blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. Let me give one minute on this. Because sometimes people worry, have I committed the sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit? If you're a Christian, you can't commit that sin. It is the final, total, lifelong rejection of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life to bring you to Christ, okay? So if you are, here's another pastorally helpful thing. If you're worried you've committed the sin of the blaspheme of the Holy Spirit, you haven't. That's the sign. You're like, I'm concerned. Nope, don't worry, it's not you. <laughs> because people who've committed that sin don't care. 
What I want us to see though is he tells that story, but he does what's called a sandwich. He talked about family, he gives that story, and then he talks about family one last time. I want us to end with this, look at this. It says this, and his mothers and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. So you can see, mom and dad are concerned, or sorry, mom and brothers are concerned. By the way, no mention of Joseph, because we think at this point, Joseph died. Also something pastorally interesting to think about. Uh, many people think Jesus was raised by potentially a single mom in, after his late teens. We don't know exactly when Joseph was done, Dad. So here we go. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered, look at this. Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of God. He is my mother and sister. Or I'm sorry, my, he is my brother and sister and mother. As the story closes for today, we see Jesus redefines everything, right? He redefines fasting. That was pretty central. He redefines the Sabbath. That was pretty central. He redefines the 12 tribes of Israel with the 12 disciples. That was, you're like, well, that's all really interesting. When you see how transformational Jesus Christ is in a person's life, you see it most clearly in what I just read. Jesus coming into the world is so significant that he even transforms how we think about family. I mean, can you, is there a more basic question to ask somebody than who's your mom, who's your dad, who's your brother, who's your sister, right? It's like we could take any two-year-old out of the kid's ministry or a three-year-old and we could pull them in here and they don't know their phone number. Well, their parents' phone number, you know what I mean? They, they don't know their address. They might not know their birth date. But if you say, who is your mom and who is your dad and who is your brother, that's the one question they know because it's so foundational. Here's what Jesus says, when I come into the world, I don't get rid of your biological relationships, obviously. Jesus makes sure his mom's taken care of at the end of his life. On the cross, he makes sure John takes care of his mother. He cared about that. What he's saying is there's something more significant, and this is even a bigger deal back then because of how essential the family is. There's something more significant than your biological family. It's your spiritual family. What Jesus is saying is that <laughs> you're born into a family, that's great. Some of us had good families, some of us had okay families, some of us had bad families. He said that when you become a Christian, you're born again into a whole new family. And this, I don't have time to unpack all this. This is unbelievably significant. When you realize that spiritual relationships are the most important relationships, those are the relationships that are gonna be primary in your life. That actually when you come to Christ, he gives you an, a, an entire new identity and being a Christian becomes the most important thing about you. Now, where do we see the family of God on earth? Where do we see it? It's, well, it's hard to see. Where would you see it? The only place you really clearly see the family of God on earth is local churches. That's why the local church embodied is so important. It's where we get a picture of the family of God on earth. So here's what happens at the very end of this story. We've been a chapter long. Everybody's confused about Jesus. Do you notice this? It's like, oh, the Pharisees are confused. His disciples actually are still kind of confused. We'll see that. But even his own family, it might be discouraging, even his own family is confused. And what they don't understand is what Jesus is trying to teach us. And they'll, they'll get it by the end. And by the end, we find out Mary believes and his brothers believe and the disciples all end up believing. But what, what Jesus is saying at the very end is what I said at the very beginning, that Jesus Christ did not come to patch up your old life, but he came to bring an entirely new life. Jesus did not come, if you're a house, he didn't come to like an old West End, Buena Vista, Ardmore house and say, all right, I need to spend a couple hundred grand and update this thing. It's no, I need to bulldoze this thing completely and I need to build a whole new structure. The way the Bible talks about becoming a Christian is so radical. 
That's part of what I want to just, we're supposed to be shocked by it. Do you know the Bible says when you give your life to Christ, you get a new mind? It's different than your brain. You get a new mind. The Bible says when you come to faith in Christ, you get a new heart. You can't fake that. You can't patch that on. The Bible says you get new affections. The Bible says you get new desires. The Bible says you become a new creation. The Bible says that you go from spiritually dead to spiritually alive. Every once in a while, things, people think, here's how I became a Christian. I was like in the ocean and I was treading water and I was barely breathing and thank God Jesus threw me a raft. It's like, okay, not the right image. Let me give you the right image. You were dead at the bottom of the ocean floor. And Jesus Christ went down, revived your life, brought you on the boat and gave you a whole new life. The question, if Christianity isn't working for you, maybe that's a weird way to say it. The question to ask is, do you have the right wine? And have you been made a new wineskin? The wine is Christ. The, wine, the whole story is about Christ. It's like a new joy, a new power, a new community, a new family, but it doesn't fit in your old life. You come to Christ when you get to the end of yourself. We wanna be a church that's super clear about the radical nature of conversion and the joy of being a new wineskin, receiving the new wine of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we just pray for this. We ask that we would be a church that understands the radical nature of conversion, that we would not be okay with moralism and conservatism and rules or even performing and pretending while we secretly keep ourselves at the center. Jesus, we ask that you would be the center of our lives. Jesus, I, I pray that we would rediscover, many of us, what it means for you to be the center of our spiritual disciplines, to be the center of our families, our marriages, our community groups, and our whole involvement in the church. We pray this in your name. Amen.